Welcome to Talk 30 to Me, a show where we talk about the perspective of 30-somethings on life. My kid is an asshole. Love. Did I tell you about the girl? twice in a week. And the never-ending pursuit of fulfillment. My name is Anthony, but most people just call me Turd. And I'm Randy Z. Let's start the show. Okay, so while we're doing this, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background and stuff? Sure. Is it okay that I'm not a millennial, though? I was just looking at your website, and I was like, oh, I may be too old for this. Uh, not really. I mean, we've had people that are a little younger than their 30s, and we have people... I mean, millennial is a pretty big, wide uh, age range, and then a lot of this is more so gearing up to go through your 30s, reflecting on your 30s, um, and everything in between. That's awesome. Well, I just officially left my 30s, like, three months ago. So oh, wow. That should be interesting. Yeah. It was interesting. And, you know, I, um, well, let me back up. So I uh, used to work on Wall Street. Okay. And about the age of 34, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Mm. I, I just can't do it. And I sat, I was sitting at my desk and I thought, well, I can't, this cannot be my legacy and I will not spend the, 30, the next 30 years doing this. Like, I just can't do it. So I, had been thinking about quitting for a while. Thankfully, they terminated my contract. I was on a contract at the time, and I was working on the worst bank on the street. And if you ask anyone on Wall Street what that is, they're <laughs> most likely going to have the same answer. So I don't even when I'm talking to in in Wall Street circles, they don't. I don't even have to say the name. And I when I took the contract, I knew it was going to be short term, and I thought, well, maybe I can withstand it for just a short amount of time. And mm-hmm. it was about a hundred times worse than I imagined it was going to be. I had um, men like throwing papers on my face when they didn't like the report that they were reading. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, the, the, the management there was super abusive toward men and women, not just women. So um, it was a really hostile work environment. And I spent the four months there thinking, how, how is this happening? Like, how are they not getting in trouble for this? And then what I found even more astonishing is that people were just putting up with it and they thought that this was normal. And, and, and it was almost like being in a world like the Twilight Zone, which I've never watched, but I understand the premise. <laughs> yeah. And so I can look back now six years later and, and think, OK, well, I'm glad I experienced that because that was really the catalyst for me. OK. And at least you could say they, you tried it right. Well, not and I had a really successful, healthy career before before that stint. I could have continued on. I could have gone on to a different um, different bank because I worked for two two companies prior to that one that were just amazing companies. And and I mean, they still had their issues, but comparatively, they were amazing. And uh, so I, you know, walking away from a hefty Wall Street salary and a healthy living. To, to pursue something new was super scary. But I think because I had an experience that I was like, no way am I going back to that. Mm-hmm. Because it was so horrible, it actually motivated me to, to, to stay on point and to continue trying to build New York Minute. And so in January 2012, I was sitting on my couch. I had just ended this contract in December. The holidays were over. And I was like, what am I going to do with my life? Like, what's next for me? And this idea plopped into my head. And I always say that it was God because I am not smart enough to come up with this. <laughs> Starting a writer's community and calling it New York Minute Magazine, which, again, not smart enough to have come up with that name. And so 
uh, and I live in New York. I love New York. How can you not? Uh, when I meet people who say they don't like New York, I immediately know these are not my people. <laughs> we're not like we're not going to be friends, which is funny because I have two people in my family who really don't like New York City, and I adore them dearly. But I just I don't get it. So uh, it started back in the day as you know, it took me about five months to get the guts to actually do it, and I had a I had a really amazing friend encouraging me to do it, and I started it. And um, back in the day, it was like one one day one post a day. And then, uh, it continued to grow. And then we were doing everything from New York city living to music out of Nashville, to fashion, to, uh, restaurants in New York city, to recipes. I mean, we were doing anything and everything. And then three years into it, I had like lost all passion, all drive, all vision for it. And I had just really been in prayer. Like, what do I do? What's my next step? Like, how do I make this something that I'm really proud of? And I had a conversation with a friend in October of 2015 at a dinner party. And he said to me, you know, Sarah, it seems like you've lost your vision for this. And I said, absolutely. I have no idea what I'm doing. And he said, entrepreneurs see a problem and they have a solution to that problem. You don't even have a problem. And I was like, in an instant, a light bulb went on and in my head. And I thought, well, New York minute needs to be about empowering women. Cause that's my heart. That's what, hmm. you know, I now in retrospect, I can look back through not only my adulthood, but as a teenager, how important it was to me to talk about how, how women are important and, and to talk about the absurdity of the inequality that I, that I have seen in my life. And I grew up in Egypt. So I experienced what it's like to be in a culture that doesn't value women at all. And I also worked on a trading floor. So it's down the street from me, but it's also across the world from me. And so I began to, you know, in the course of uh, my walk home from that dinner party, I had a 20 minute walk home. Uh, I made a decision that I was changing New York minute. It was on a Friday night that weekend to be all about women. And within the course of the weekend, I had already come up with a plan. And the next week I started implementing it. And November, 2015, we started writing all about how women empower themselves, women breaking barriers, but we also cover global issues. Uh, you know, the effects of inequality are human trafficking, FGM, gender-based violence, honor killings, girls not being educated, the wage gap. We cover all of that. So you not only get how to empower yourself, how to empower the women within your sphere of influence, uh, but also the global view of what's happening around the world. And it's also for men because I 100% believe that it is men's job as well as women's job to try to achieve equality. We both need to work on it. 100%. 100%. I think it's very, very important for in the, in the last of our culture today, there's a lack of education, a lack of appreciation in, in understanding what equality is. And I don't think that we do enough to relate the importance of, of equality and what it looks like and what it really is. Exactly. And I, you know, the more conversations I have with men and I'm, I'm, you know, one, one of the things that we're very clear on at New York Minute is we do not bash men. We're not man haters. We're not like trying to take men down. We're not trying to displace men. However, for equality to happen, for empowerment of women to happen, power has to be shared. So not as many men can have all the power. Do you see what I'm saying? So there is an aspect of it where we are trying to take power away from men, but we're not trying to do it in a malicious way. We're just trying to even out the playing field, right? 
And the more conversations I have with men, and I ha- I've had some very enlightening conversations because obviously my perspective is solely from a woman's you know, point of view. But I've had men that like genuinely do not understand when they're when they're making a misogynistic comment or when when they're doing something that can be perceived as misogynistic. And there's also a number of men that in this day and age are a little confused. Like, do I pull out a chair? Do I open the door? Do I pay for the date? You know, these are things that we have to start talking about and we have to, uh, you know, shed some light because. There's a lot of ambiguity. And what I have realized is there's a lot of fear. Like I've heard men say, if I hug a coworker, is that considered sexual harassment? Wow. Yeah. So I think we, so these things have to be discussed. There's definitely a culture of ignorance is bliss that goes on in a lot of different places, just primarily because, one, it, it is solely based on education. But I think there is not enough of that to help men kind of understand and familiarize themselves with the disproportionate relationships in the workplace. Because I guess men are so used to working with men that they treat everybody like men. I've actually caught myself doing things and like around my male coworkers. It's like, nah, I, I probably should kind of reel that in a little bit. Just in the event that this happens again, I'm kind of training myself mentally so I don't repeat the same mistakes. And I will say this. So millennial men are the best at this. They they are trying to catch themselves. They are trying to promote an environment and a culture of inclusiveness and not misogyny. So they're they're more apt to, you know, be okay with having a woman boss. They they're more likely to want to work for a company that gives you know, a good amount of maternity leave and, and mm-hmm. realizing that they're going to have to cover for their coworker. Right. They're, they are more open to be on an equal footing with women than generations before them. So there's definitely, you know, I work with a lot of college students. Um, we have a lot of uh, college students that work on New York Minute. So I've invested so much of my time and my resources as well as just responsibility for New York Minute into the hands of millennials. And while they have, they do have a bad reputation, there is so much that is good about millennials when, when you're thinking about across the board, but specifically when I'm thinking about the way they view equality and social justice, they're more in tune than any generation before them. Because as a generation that came before, we're like, we accepted things as they are. We, we, we were, you know, this is, this is the way it is. And you, as a woman, you navigate your way through the way that it is rather than trying to change it. And now at a later age, I decided, no, 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 I want to be part of the change. I don't want to just sit, grin and bear it. And we, we had a, a, a video and an article that we did about Monica Lewinsky not too long ago. And I was, I think either in junior high or in high school when the whole Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky thing happened. I think I was in high school. I'm making myself a lot older. Than <laughs> um, I, I think I was in high school or maybe even, co- no, I think I was in college. Oh, okay. Well, now you're making yourself even older. I know. Seriously. <laughs> I, it was the nineties. It was the nineties. So where it were you in the nineties? So I was in high school and in college. And, uh, I remember when the Monica Lewinsky thing happened, no one stopped and thought, 
this isn't this this girl's fault. She's only 22 years old or 21. I can't remember how old she was at the time. No one thought, okay, she's being taken advantage of. All the talk was, you know, calling her a slut and saying she brought down the presidency and and uh, how dare she do this? Well, what about the old guy in the Oval Office who's in charge? And so, right. Uh, if that were to happen now, I think that the reaction would be different because I don't think millennials would let that fly. Whereas my generation just jumped on board and attacked the woman. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And this kind of brings to mind something that kind of occurred to me after we started this conversation. This really, your your passion for this, and you kind of alluded to it, stemmed from your childhood, but you didn't really come to the realization until you were an adult. So take me back. Uh, I mean, you said you immigrated from Egypt into the U.S. Um, I'm sure you saw a lot of things. I'm Middle Eastern myself. My family comes from Palestine, but I was born and raised here. I'm a proud San Francisco native. I moved down to L.A. for college, and I never left for whatever reason. And and now you know, here I am, I'm on the, I'm on the other side of the spectrum where I consider myself American. So I was never really subject to that culture, um, from an actual, like an authentic standpoint. Like I lived there and I saw it, even though I had cousins that came from there and uncles and aunts, and I kind of got a feel for it. I was never steeped in that culture. I was kind of like mildly introduced to it, but you coming from Egypt and then being able to uh, compare that culture versus U.S. culture, American culture, and noticing similarities from different perspectives, right? When you were younger versus when you're older and in the workforce, kind of walk me through that, your childhood, and how that correlates to, to your revelation almost 30, 30 years later. So the well, now you're aging me. <laughs> <laughs> you did that to yourself. I'm merely adding on to it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I actually had a very happy childhood. I would love for everyone to have had a, like such a lovely childhood that I was given. My parents were both loving parents and they gave me everything. And I had a lot of family around me and, um, but I, you know, so when I was really young, I was obviously not aware of it. I, I grew up in a Christian family. So in Christian families, you only marry one person, whereas in the Muslim culture, men can marry more than one woman. So when I started realizing that that was a thing, I would run home to my parents and ask, well, how come I only have one mom and one dad? And then uh-huh. some houses, there's multiple families and just one with one man. And my parents just explained to us that that's not part of our culture right. and our, our faith. And so as I got older, I sort of realized, well, okay, so can a woman marry more than one man? And the answer was no. And then as I got even older and saw that men can legally beat their wives, that's just when my like brain blew up. That was back in the Middle East, right? Yeah. 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 So I didn't understand how that can happen. So I'm actually quite thankful that at a very young age, I was able to see the effects of inequality. Obviously, at a young age, I wasn't processing it in that frame. But now looking back, I'm so glad that that the indignation was in me as a little girl. And so we moved here when I was almost 12 years old. And I had a really normal American upbringing in Colorado. So I 
I was surrounded by a ton of white people. I, for the most part, I was raised in white culture and I, it didn't, it didn't phase me. I didn't have any, I didn't experience any racism. If anything, I experienced bullying because I was an immigrant with an accent, but I didn't experience any racism or anything like that. And so it, you know, it took me several years to actually immerse myself into American culture but of course, anyone with immigrant parents knows you can't do that 100% because you're going home to immigrant parents that expect, you know, their expectations of you are different than what you're going to see your friend's parents' expectations. Like I had, I always had an earlier curfew and things like that. So then I moved to New York as an adult. And just when I entered the workforce, I'm not sure I always saw inequality play out, but I definitely saw it when I was working on the trading floor, referred to as little girl and and, and things like that. So I do see likeness in the ideology, but the way that it's carried out is differently. Like I haven't really seen, you know, here it's not legal for a man to beat a woman, right? Well, Um, there, it might not be legal, but it certainly took a while for us to to kind of slap them on the wrist and say, hey, you know what? That's not right. Absolutely. It was more of the fear that was instilled in the woman and the fact that now we're seeing kind of what was going on 20 or 30 years ago when all these kinds of things were happening, right, with Bill Cosby and all these other things that are coming out of the closet because women were so afraid. Well, it was the same thing when when a husband would beat his wife while well, the wife and, – and I remember growing up seeing this on TV, even still today – the wife would be afraid, oh, no, I fell down the stairs or I hit my eye on a door. So exactly. she would make excuses. It was fear. We instilled a, a culture of fear in our in our significant others and women in general. So to suppress them from speaking up because it was a man, it was a man's world. It was male dominated. It was not OK for a woman to go out and throw a man under the bus for what he did wrong because it was just the way the world worked. And if he did it, there's no doubt that. Everyone else was doing it. So it was like, well, you know, if you expose one, you expose them all. Hence the Me Too movement, right? Exactly. And I remember not too long ago seeing a video of, um, I think it was filmed in Algeria, where they were talking to both men and women, and some of them were fairly young, and asking the men, do you beat your wife? And they were like, yeah, like if she annoys me, or if she, after a long, hard day, yeah, you know, sometimes you just have to put her in line. And then they asked the women and the woman was like, yeah, I don't mind if my husband beats me. Sometimes I need it. It shows me that he is passionate and loves me. So it was actually part of the culture. 100%. The women didn't see anything wrong with it. And I often think about if I had grown up in a different country and not, I am an American woman. I am very empowered. I'm very enlightened. I've been given a lot of opportunity and that's why I feel responsible to shed light for women who are not empowered and who are not, who don't have the same opportunity that I do. So, I, you know, I think of women in, in countries where, you know, rape is the norm. And I know how fortunate I am. And I often wonder if I were born and raised in a different country, would I have this much passion for equality or would I have just conformed? To the, to the idea that equality is not achievable. You could have been one of those people that actually sparked the revolution. And, and on the other hand, this, this brings up another question in my mind. 
if you were brought up in another country, would you rather that country be a country that admits they have a problem or knows they have a problem and it's out in the open or a country much like the U.S. that has been burying skeletons in closets for decades only for them to come out all at once? I, I'm, I'm kind of conflicted from that standpoint. I'd like to see what you think about it. You know, I'm not sure that it, in my mind right away a country comes out and says, yeah, we have a problem with rape. We have a problem. You know, maybe India. Yeah, India. I, yeah, that's I know a big India one. is dealing with rape in, in a really massive way because yeah. it's one of the most dangerous places for women to be. Yeah. I think that the countries, we've done a lot of videos. Uh, we, we do like a one-minute social media videos all the time just to try to get people informed. And we've been really focusing a lot on what countries could we learn from. And right now, a lot of them are, you know, the Nordic countries, the European countries that are really going after equal pay, promoting paternity leave, things, things like that. None of the Middle Eastern countries, I feel like, are stepping up and saying, no, we don't treat women well and we need to work on that. What I see them doing is pretending like, like they're fixing the problem. Like I, I think of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia keeps on coming out with these like new initiatives that they're doing to try to appease this reputation they have for just being terrible with human rights and, and, and the way that they treat women. So, you know, they said, oh, women can drive. Okay, that's fantastic. But when you dig deeper into it, they have to have a male guardian with them and they have to have a male guardian's permission. Okay. So there are, there are ways that they're, it's kind of like a loophole for them to kind of look cool, but we're still fucked up. <laughs> exactly. They're playing a PR game so that you read the headline. The headline is Saudi Arabia is going to let women drive. Yay, we're solving we're solving the women's rights issues in Saudi Arabia, except we're not. And it was 18 months away. Another headline that came out recently is that they're going to let women serve in the military. OK, well, when you dig deeper, no, they're not. It's women age 25 to 35 and they're going to do administrative roles. Wow. So there's massive restrictions, and it is completely an oppressive society. It is a controlling society, and I don't see any Middle Eastern countries, by the way, Egypt included, stepping up and saying, hey, we have a problem and we're trying to fix it. Now, Egypt, I know a lot of it, Egypt, just from being from there, Egypt is trying to fix a lot of its problems, but no one is airing their dirty laundry. Like, no one is saying hey, we got to stop beating women. <laughs> like no one is saying, you know, you know what I mean? So there are a lot of lessons we learned in countries that are ahead of us in policy, which tend to be, again, European countries, Nordic countries, Canada is another one. France, France is, is making changes when it comes to, to the wage gap. But as far as the everyday life of women, being able to walk down the street and not being in fear of being raped there are measures being made, but it's still a far cry from women feeling safe. What I have noticed and what I am seeing is the boldness of women that, that is happening across the globe that's, that's saying, no, you will not do this to me. No, I will stand in solidarity with my sisters and protect them and, and fight for them. And that is what's happening. So I think... Again, I'm going to go back to my earlier comment about millennial men. I see millennial men as being an integral part of this of this fight here in America. I, I don't have a view of what 
millennial men across the world are like. And I don't know if they're helping women, you know, if they see the problems that, oh my goodness, no, I am sorry. I do see women differently and I, I don't treat them the way that I should. So I, I, I haven't had a lens into that. So at, at 34, you came to your tipping point and decided to go completely left field with your career. And you've dedicated the last X amount of years, we don't want to date anybody, of your life. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> uh, committed to, you know, this new purpose and cause. So tell me more about uh, what you're doing with um, New York Minute magazine. So, yeah, I think math-wise, I just turned 40. <laughs> so it is definitely six years. So New York Minute is solely devoted to empowering women. So we, our aim is to show women their, their badassery. I, I 100% believe every single woman is born to be a badass, like from the beginning, like she doesn't even have to work toward it. She can build on it, but she's built as a badass. I think that God created women with a lot of amazing things. He created men with a lot of amazing things as well. And we're different. We're supposed to fit together, come together and really change the world. But the badassery in women is really what we highlight. And we, we want every woman to realize it and not beat themselves up so much. Cause I, come across so many women who just don't think they're enough. They're not doing enough. Mm -hmm. They're not pretty enough. They're not a good enough mom. They're not good enough at their job. All the world just beats up on women and women take it. And so our aim is to change that. And I genuinely believe that being a woman is always a strength, never a deficiency. And so we encourage women to pursue their dreams and to define success on their own terms. And with that, I think, you know, I touched on this a little bit earlier, when, when you are a woman that lives in a country that allows you to be empowered, such as America, I feel like it is your duty to then empower the women within your sphere of influence and try to figure out a way to reach your sisters across the globe. And so we, we discuss that quite a bit. And like I said before, we focus on the effects of inequality. So we, you know, a lot of people can say, oh, I didn't know that when we talk about human trafficking or honor killings or what F a lot of people don't know what FGM is, which is female genital mutilation. So what we do is, you know, those are all effects of the ideology of inequality. We bring it to your, you know, laptop, phone, whatever you're using so that you can't say I didn't know so that you can join the fight. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. So going back to, to 34, how hard was that transition for you? Oh my goodness! I come from an immigrant family. Try telling my dad that this is what I'm going to do. That's that's, <laughs> that's what I wanted to know. So like, how what, was that conversation? Yeah, what were those conversations yeah. like? Oh, it's see, it's ongoing. You guys, six years later, he's like, "When are you going to go get a real job?" <laughs> it's, and it's never going to change. So, Sounds like my dad, <laughs> and I have a real job. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's the way he was raised, and I was fortunate to have a job that gave me a decent salary, more than a decent salary. He worked hard and sacrificed so much to bring me here. And now it's like I was spitting in the face of opportunity. And he still sees it that way. And so, you know, for me, one of the things that have that helped in the very beginning and continues to help is that I'm a very strong-willed person. And it doesn't matter if people tell me I'm crazy. If I believe I'm doing the right thing and I'm doing the thing that I'm called to do, I feel like I was called by God to do this. 
if I believe that I'm doing the right thing, then there is going to be a p- opposition. There will be people that have called me, you know, that will call me stupid. It has happened or that I'm lazy and I just want to sit at home and sit in front of my laptop because, you know, what I'm doing is super easy. That was sarcasm. It's not. <laughs> and, you know, so the, there's always going to be the naysayers or the people that just, and my dad is not intending to be a naysayer. The, my friends, I've had friends that have told me, stop and go, go get a job. People that even work in creative fields have told me that. And at the end of those conversations, I have to examine, is there truth to what they're saying? And is it the time to quit? And so far, it's being true to your convictions and, and trying to stick through the hard times. Look, there, there are many nights that I cried myself to sleep. And it still happens every now and then because it's really hard to build something from scratch on your own and something that I didn't even have experience in previously. But I really just had conviction and passion for what I was doing. So I, I, have, I have a question in regards to what you mentioned about the conviction and and finding your purpose and and it being rooted in um, what you are what you are called to do from 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 God. What what did that feel like, or what like how did you know? That's something I struggle with in trying to identify signs and 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 figuring out what direction or which which way I should pivot or move with my career and trajectory. So I would love to hear your insight on that, especially when we live in a world that's not really dominated by religion anymore, or at least it feels like that to me. So I yeah. could be wrong. Oh my goodness, people think I'm insane. (laughs) Like most of the time. I think when you are really trying to seek guidance from God, and I know people have different definitions of who that is or what that is. For me, that's Jesus. I'm a Christian. I've never been 100% sure, like ever. And so what, what I find in the life of faith, whether taking a leap of faith, whether it is in um, a higher power in your God, in Jesus, or if it's a, if it's just a leap of faith in yourself, you know, trying to believe in yourself or trying to believe in another person, the concept of faith is not knowing. So you're not going to know 100%. You're not going to know what the future looks like. You're not going to know, you know, when, when you're called to do something, you don't get a blueprint. You're not getting a timeline. You're not getting a project plan. So for me, looking back over the six years, it's been a step-by-step process. And there are times where I have doubted myself, where I have doubted my calling and doubted that I heard from him. But initially, when I heard from him, it was like this. It was a piece that I can't really explain, um, followed by, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? So the, the in, in, there was an initial piece that this makes sense. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, that came when I decided to make the magazine all about empowering women. There was That was a split-second decision that two and a half years later, I have not had a second of regret on. But when I first started the magazine, I didn't necessarily have this calmness. It was like what I had... It was an idea that I felt was from God. However, and the reason I felt like it was an idea from God is because no one had heard me say, I want to start a magazine or I want to go into publishing or I want to go into building a website. It was an idea that came to me that was like completely out of left field. And the more I thought about it, the more I felt driven to do it. So that that is how I believed in that instance that, that it came to me. But it was 
abruptly followed by, I don't know how to do this. I'm not equipped. I'm not smart enough to do this. I'm not strong enough to do this. All of the reasons we give ourselves not to go through something, I went through all of that and I went through it for years. But I think bravery is knowing that something is scary as hell and you proceeding anyway. And I'm I know I just refer to myself as brave, but I'm saying I'm trying to be brave. I'm not, necessar- <laughs> I'm not necessarily there yet, but I'm trying to I'm trying to be brave and uh, you know going against this the status quo, leaving a job that was secure and provided, and nobody was trying to push me out of it, and um, trying to have a you know in retrospect, I have a very unusual life, and I don't have a life that conforms to what you're supposed to do her social norms. And I'm really thankful for that. And it's been hard to build it and, and to stand alone sometimes. But I, you know, I think I didn't want my story to look like everyone else's. And so listening to that voice, when it tells you to do something unusual, it's so easy to ignore it in our society because you want to have a life like everyone else, you know, everyone else got married and had kids and has a, has, you know, a job that allows them to go on vacation once a year. Like, why don't I have that, right? We, we can all aim for the norm so that we don't feel like the weird kid, right? But I, I have always, to some degree, been the weird kid. And I think that there's a lot of power in that. And there's a lot of strength that you gain from being different. And it's, you know, it's daring to try to do something that may blow up in your face and everyone will say, I told you so. But I think at the end of the day, you know, six years in, I think I've really dealt with the idea of being a failure and that doesn't really bother me so much. When you started your career on Wall Street, didn't you feel the same things that you were feeling when you started New York Minute? Oh my goodness. When I started working on the trading floor, I didn't speak to anyone for three months. And that was because of your social anxiety or just because you were kind of like you felt like you weren't fitting or you weren't ready for the job? I well, I mean, I could do the job and I did it well, but I just felt completely intimidated by everyone around me. 100% intimidated. I didn't feel like I belonged there. I felt like I could do the job, but I didn't feel like I belonged there. And I, I remember like when we would stay late, we, they would always order us dinner and one of the trading assistants came over and I, you know, on the trading floor, you're sitting right next to the, to other people. So there's, you don't have a cubicle, you don't have your own desk, um, which is actually an environment that I loved. But I remember one of the trading assistants coming and asking my boss who I sat next to, is she staying for dinner rather than asking me myself? And it's, you know, part of that could have been, I could easily say, oh, that was misogyny. That was sexism. That was this, that was that. But it was because I myself wouldn't speak to them. I mean, that was part of it. I was so intimidated. And so the, the fear of what am I doing? I don't belong or, or I don't have a place here or all of, all of the fears that I had starting New York Minute, I felt those as a young person sitting on a, on a trading floor. So I, it was I a very familiar feeling for you. Yeah, I was like, here we go again. <laughs> I, think, I think this was worse, though, because at least with that one, there was a security of collecting a paycheck. Sure. And there was a, you know, okay, I'm just young and I'll learn as I go. The other, you know, the, the, when I decided to New York, to do New York Minute, it was, I don't know what I'm doing. 
No one is there to tell me what to do. I don't have a boss. I don't have any guidance. Um, and um, there's no money. So I feel like it, it, was, it was maybe multiplied by a thousand. You answered my question before I could even ask it, by the way. So kudos to you. <laughs> but with that being said, is that relatability to your starting your career early in your 20s or late in your 20s, early in your 30s and moving up? something you could have leveraged while starting New York Minute sends the, okay, now I can collect a paycheck. Because one of the things that you mentioned, and, and it's a really prevalent fear in a lot of people's minds, financial stability. Financial stability is the root cause of a lot of people's apprehension from starting something that they're really passionate about because of two things. One, you mentioned earlier, this idea might not be good enough. I might not be good enough. Um, it's a lack of confidence in either A, the idea, or B, the, the individual that's starting the idea, right? Yourself, typically, or the people that you're working with to, to start it. And the second part of it is the financial freedom, right? The ability to have that vacation, have that free time, not be tied down to what you're doing because of a fear that you're going to get bored of it or sick of it. And, and you hit that wall, right? And you retooled and, and you reconfigured your idea, and that's really great. What that allowed you to do was take a step back and approach it from a different perspective. And that reinvigorated your whole passion for your New York Minute idea. So the question becomes, why is it that in life it's so difficult? And, and with your experience, I think you're, you're really suited to answer this question or maybe um, maybe not. Maybe we could visit that. But why is it in life that we can't use past experiences to leverage that confidence and that bravery that you alluded to in order to springboard us into something bigger and better. You know, because I think it goes back to, and this is not strictly for women, we all at some point have this thought, I am not enough. And some of us buy into that lie a lot deeper than others. And the ones that have that thought and cast it aside and say, no, that's like, that's so not true. Those are like the Steve Jobs of the world and they're few and far between. So I think the problem is that we believe the lie that we're not enough. And I sat, I actually moderated a panel at the NYU conference last week. Uh, it was the Stern Women in Business for their graduate program. It, it was a conference and I sat on a panel. I was the moderator of a panel that discussed changing careers and how, how difficult that is. And, and, and we discussed a lot of the same things we've talked about today. And something that was said that I thought was so profound was there were two women on the panel who um, have retired. They were well-established attorneys and it was time for them to retire and they retired. And then they were like, now what? We don't feel like we're done. So they're doing a second act and they started a women's uh, a website for women who are going through, you know, the same situation. And one of the things they, one of them said was every person in a boardroom or in a meeting feels like they're faking it till they make it. But no one talks about that. <laughs> yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? No, absolutely. So it, it occurred to me that in so many of the meetings that I've sat in, and when I'm talking to someone that sounds so confident, they could very well be faking it. And 
one of the mistakes I made is I wasn't very good at faking. I would tell people I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so if, you know, in retrospect, there's so much that I would have done differently. I would have probably put a business plan together before I started a business. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been, I've been going on passion for six years and I'm just now getting to a point where I'm like, okay, the business plan is forming in my mind, which is absolutely ridiculous. And I would not encourage anyone to do that. I would encourage everyone to marry their passion with a business plan. But I think for me, there is a lot that I learned from my experience in the corporate world. It helped, it taught me, and I didn't realize I was getting this experience, by the way. I only realized that I had these skills as I was playing them out while building New York Minute. Building a company and running a company and running operations is second nature to me. Like, that is something I can do in my sleep. And the reason I can do that is because I did it for so long in the corporate world. I always worked in business management. I worked in operations. Um, I worked in like, you know, managing budgets, managing teams, organizational management, change management. So all of that, because of my experience in the corporate world, I was able to leverage that seamlessly without even realizing I was doing it while building New York Minute. And I continue to do so. It's just one of those things that I'm good at. There are other things that I'm not good at. Again, the whole business plan and, 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 and you know, the things that, that go along with that. And so there are good things that I leveraged from the corporate world. The confidence thing, I did not. While I felt confident in the jobs that I was doing in the corporate world, as in I think I am doing this well, there was always an aspect of I'm not doing it good enough, there was always an aspect of trying to achieve more because the corporate world that I lived in was very competitive and it was, you know, it was never like a pat you on the back and say, Oh, you're doing great. Stay, stay there. It was always like, okay, that was good. What's next. And it, it, it's, you are constantly encouraged to climb the corporate ladder. So that means there has to be a level of there's more for you to achieve. And so I feel like that culture for me, I can't speak for everyone else, uh, you know, aided in not feeling super confident all the time. Do you feel like that gives you a unique skill set to help you manage and run your business differently? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I think if I'm with, with the people I manage, I think if I'm unhappy with them, they know it. But I try not to ever, like, I've never yelled. Um, I try to. Never? I've never yelled, no, because I, I don't, uh, I mean, I can yell at my family, but I can't. (laughs) You don't want to create a hostile work environment at work, but your family, fuck it. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Yeah, that's totally different. I mean, we're going to love each other no matter what is said. Right. But I feel like also because I work with young people, I don't want to stunt their growth, but I also, it's never been like, it's never been an impulse for me to yell while I'm at work. Uh, or while I'm working. And so I don't yell, but I express my displeasure in a very clear way. However, that's, I would say that's a fraction of the time, like a small, small fraction of the time. I really feel, again, that I'm called to mentor these young people and that that that's an honor and a privilege. And so I, I try to do it to the best of my ability. I don't always do it well. Uh, and so I want them to figure out what is their next step? Where do they want to go? Are they learning something while they're at New York Minute that 
will then shape their next step or show them what they really want to do or what they're really good at. So that's my aim. I want I want them to discover their future or at least their next step. But, you know, when someone is just super slacking off, I have very little patience for that. So th- those are the times where I express. And, and we're not an ER, so it's not like anyone's going to make a mistake that we can't fix. But when, you know, when someone isn't taking the role seriously or what they're doing seriously, because I really do believe in, you know, you can be professional at work, but also informal and fun. And I try to have that kind of environment where we get stuff done, but we also, you know, discuss Game of Thrones. <laughs> so, um, you know, we make a joke that no one that doesn't watch Game of Thrones is allowed on our team, but I, I let it slide sometimes. <laughs> it's a good thing I don't work for you because I don't watch Game of Thrones, but I read the books. <laughs> oh, you've got to change that ASAP. <laughs> so, Sarah, you mentioned next steps. And I know for me, going into 30, I took a little more risk. And I know you at 34, you took the risk with the magazine. Stepping into 40, what is what is next for you? Can I just tell you, turning 40 is like the most freeing feeling I've ever had, which is crazy. Why is that? So leading, leading up to 40, and I'm going to get a little personal leading up to 40, about like two, two years leading into it. I was like, I have got to get my shit together. (laughs) 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 So that's usually what people are saying going into 30. But the funny thing is going into 30, I did have my shit together. You know, I had my bank account looked healthy. I had, you know, security. So I didn't feel that pressure going into 40. I'm like, okay, I've been running a business for a while. It's not financially where it needs to be. I don't feel financially stable. I don't know what my future is going to look like. Everything is really ambiguous and murky. Mm. And on top of it, you know, I'm still not married, which by the way, like marriage was never like my super goal, but it was, you know, it was like, maybe that's something I should look into. <laughs> <laughs> but you're Middle Eastern, what? And Catholic. <laughs> I, know, I know. And my and my parents, like my dad is pretty much given up at this point. Like he, 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 he doesn't expect it to happen, but he, I mean, he's hopeful for it, but he just doesn't expect it to happen. And, but to me, it has never been like something that's going to define me. Like I don't feel not whole because I don't have a husband. I mean, I would, I would be a really bad feminist if, if that was how I felt. And so I, because I feel so secure being alone, I think it's always hindered me from really trying to tackle this thing or taking it seriously. And so, but going into 40, I'm like, maybe I should look into that because, you know, and then they tell you, you can't have kids when you're older. And I'm like, do I buy into that? Like, I mean, I know science, it's not like, it's not like, (laughs) I know there's science behind it, but there's also women that have, you know, babies in their forties. So, so I started thinking, okay, before this milestone hits, I really have to be financially secure. I need to understand exactly what my future is going to look like and what I'm working toward. I need to probably find the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with, like all of this stuff. Right. So then 40 happens and it happened 33, three months ago and not, none of those things had happened. So how does that, how does that make you feel though? So the night before my 40th birthday, I was looking in the mirror because we were getting ready. My birthday is on Christmas. And so we were going somewhere for Christmas Eve And I was looking in the mirror as I was getting ready. And I just had this utter moment of peace and calmness. I have never experienced that before in my life. And I was like, I can do this. I can face 40. Like, this is fine. Like, I'm fine. 
And so because the milestone came and went and none of the things I thought I had to have achieved happened, I was like, oh, I am so fine. Like, I'm so fine. Now I have 10 more years to the next one. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't want to take 10 years to be, to feel, to, to accomplish the goals that I have. And now, like this year, I'm really way more focused than I've ever been on the goals that I have for this year. I'm not like a new, new year's resolution person, but I have serious goals for the magazine. I have serious goals for, um, you know, my own personal life and uh not the marriage thing but other things and you know i think I, i'm just going to take it one step at a time and i don't feel that social pressure that at 40 or 30 you're supposed to have these things together because again i'm living out a different story and i don't know where it's taking me and there's a lot of excitement and anxiety but also excitement that goes along with that and but 40 is like super freeing. Like I would recommend it for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> you would recommend it for all right, maybe I'll explore that option. <laughs> you know, for the longest time leading up to it, I would not even call it that. I called it 3010. Not, not a joke. <laughs> Sounds like my like, son. <laughs> everybody I like I taught little kids that after 39, 3010 happens and their parents were not pleased. And I, when I had a birthday party, the invitation said 3010. I just would not, I would denounce 40 like crazy. And then it came and I was like, no, I can do this. This is cool. Nice. So as we wrap up here, Sarah, I have uh, one last question for you. With the magazine, if you struck a chord with any of our listeners and they want to reach out, what are you looking for? Are you looking for, you know, pitches or articles or features? How can our, our listeners get engaged with you? So if they want to write for us, they can always email us. Uh, we typically only do it for interns uh, that are doing it for internship credit. Like they're, you know, they're pursuing a degree in, in writing or English or we, we have some others that are not pursuing that. But, you know, we we are open to op-ed pieces as well. Um, I think the best way for someone to become part of our community is to be on our site. Tell us, give us feedback. Are these articles resonating with you? What do you want to read about? What do you want to learn about? Because we'll do out, we'll go out there, do the research and bring it to you. But, but if you want to get involved, like 100%, you can email us. I see every email and we, we take everything, all the feedback seriously, because we really want to serve our community and we really want to be bringing people eye openers. So anything else that you want to add about the magazine that you want our listeners to know? Yeah, so what some of the things that I'm working on this year is um, I, because, because of a personal journey, and there's, there's articles about it on our website, I realized last year that having a healthy lifestyle as far as the way that you eat and cooking from scratch, I had to cut out some stuff out of my diet, like, dairy, wheat, sugar, you know, everything that tastes good. I basically oh, had to cut man. out. So, <laughs> That's tough. Yeah. That's so tough. It, it was really tough. And I mourned for a really long time. Then I got off my ass and I figured out, okay, well, how do I make Nutella? So seriously, I, le- I taught myself how to make Nutella. I came up with a recipe of how to make Nutella within my restrictions. And it was freaking delicious. And so I started watching these food bloggers for how to eat healthy and still like enjoy food because food is a really big part of my life. 
And so what I found is that it's super empowering to cook for yourself and it's super empowering to really try to heal your body through food. And so we kicked off, we just kicked it off this last week, a Be Healthy column with, with an amazing food blogger. And we're going to continue to interview more bloggers and bring people some some really helpful tips. Um, so that's one of our initiatives is to be healthy and empower yourself through what you put in your body. Uh, one of the things that we're working on this this year, and this will be later on, but we're you know working on how how do you empower yourself at work? And we want to address things like how do I negotiate my salary? How do I interview better? How do I speak to my boss? Things like that that are really that women are really facing at work. So that's that's uh, soon to come. That's really awesome. So I've been on the New York Minute Magazine website. It's really cool. It's a really cool spot. Definitely a place I encourage our listeners to go visit, male or female. I've actually uh, I looked at the badass men link, and it's all the way at the end. I like that, by the way. It's <laughs> clever. Yeah. Um, but definitely it if, wraps it around it starts with the women <laughs> does a bunch of stuff and then comes you, around to you, the men. there is some continuity there i'll give you that um but definitely our listeners should tune in newyorkminutemag.com and it's uh just uh, off the website it's a space that enables women to empower themselves and those in their sphere of influence and it definitely preaches the mission for equality and strength and focuses on the badassery of women. So definitely check it out. I really like the website. I like the way it's laid out. Pretty clean. I want our listeners to reach out. Can you guys relate? Are you women of color or men of color that can relate to anything that was said today? Do you guys feel like the empowerment of women is something that is needed in our society and something that needs to take center stage? As someone that has a daughter, I know that the mission that Sarah put out there is something that resonates with me because I want the future of our world to be a more inclusive one. I want our listeners to feel like that should resonate with each and every one of them, whether or not they have a daughter or they have, because I'm sure everyone has a woman that's special to them in their lives. So Sarah, I want to thank you for coming on our show. If our listeners Thank want you to, for having me. <laughs> if our listeners want to uh, follow you or engage with you, uh, where can they find you? So they can always email us on our website, but we are pretty active on Instagram. That's kind of our main platform right now, and it's NY Minute Mag. So you can find us there, and I again, I see everything that comes through. Awesome. And Randy, where can the people find you? You can find me anywhere and everywhere at I am Randy Z in Turk. You can find me at Turg Says No on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for subscribing to another episode of Talk 30 to Me. We hope you enjoy it and continue to share it with friends. Make sure to stop by our website at talk30tome.com for more content and information about the podcast. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you really like what you hear, make sure to leave us an awesome five-star review. For Talk 30 to Me, I'm Turg. And I'm Randy Z. Peace. Ha, ha, ha.